So to continue with the chapter, uh, Understanding Dharma, which is uh, chapter 2 of this book. What we call skillfulness or wholesomeness is translated in our language as cleverness, a circumspect quality with which we can live our lives in the world. It's necessary to have merit and skillful means working together. So um, skillfulness uh, or wholesomeness uh, usually translated as uh, as kusala, uh, what is wholesome, and then skillful means, usually the word translated for um, uh, skillful means is upaya, and that's often referring to a particular method or approach or, or attitude um, that is involved. So I'm not sure what the original Thai would have been there, but um, <coughs> these, um, he's talking, uh, it was early he was talking about how you need both merit, the, the, the qualities of, of good karma and the brightness of heart that comes from that, uh, that kind of wholesomeness, but also the quality of, um, uh, say, wise reflection, uh, as he says here, wholes- uh, skillfulness, Skillful means uh, or um, the quality of skillfulness working together. So there's uh, both the um, sadha, the faith element, and the wisdom element uh, working together. Then he goes on to say, Merit is like raw meat, which will go bad after a while. Wisdom is the salt that preserves it. Or you can put it in the refrigerator. (laughs) Refrigerators were a new thing in northeast Thailand at that time. It is said there is no light like wisdom, no river like tanha or craving. So the Buddha advised in acting, eating and seeing, don't let them become tanha. Live in the world, but know the world clearly, not letting the heart become flooded by craving. That is, keep letting go. Though one, maybe one or two things to mention there, um, with the, the, the twinning of faith uh, and what he's referring to as merit, that's uh, sort of the faith end of the spectrum, and then the wisdom end of the spectrum, the, the quality of uh, cleverness or wise reflection, um, skillful means. That there, there's a particular set of qualities called the five indriya, the five, also known, known as the five spiritual faculties, and um, they are faith, energy, uh, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. So this is a very frequent um, th- uh, collection of qualities mentioned in the suttas, but also very commonly referred to in the forest tradition teachings. And often they are spoken about like as being the, uh, the using the image of a bird uh, to to describe this and how these factors are, are twinned with each other. So in, particularly in terms of giving meditation uh, guidance and such like. So uh, sada and Panya are a pair, and Virya and Samadhi are a pair, and Sati is in the middle. So Sati is like the body of the bird, and then uh, one wing of the bird is energy and faith, and the other wing of the bird is concentration and, and wisdom. And so that uh, the, uh, the way that these uh, qualities are often talked about is they need to balance each other. So as he's, um, as he's saying here, using the example of meat and preservation of meat. Um, so uh, often with respect to, to faith, uh, if faith is uh, a lot of faith and not much wisdom, then we're very easily, uh, we believe things very easily. We're credulous. 
we are too easily drawn by things um, and that the, the, the heart gets sort of pulled into particular enthusiasms or things that are inspiring or that you, that you trust uh, and that the, the, the mind is, is ready, very ready to believe whatever it picks up. So uh, too much faith and not enough wisdom then yeah, it inclines towards a kind of starry-eyed um, uh, devotional, devotionalism. If you have too much wisdom and not enough faith, then uh, the result is often just a, an intellectualism. The mind inclines towards figuring things out, having intellectual, uh, conceptual explanations for things, but uh, is skeptical and then it doesn't have that element of faith or trust. And so it can be like a, a very dry uh, intellectualist uh, intellectualism uh, and in the approach towards uh, the practice. So whereas a lot of faith and no wisdom is kind of colorful and, <laughs> and uh, emotionally charged, uh, but not very wise, or, or, or you know, one gets drawn into uh, unhelpful enthusiasms, uh, the other end of the spectrum, then wisdom, uh, too much wisdom, not enough faith, then you become sort of critical, skeptical, and it's a, a very a dry intellectual approach. So, but if the two balance each other, then faith and wisdom work together as a, a, a well-balanced uh, unit. Similarly, energy and uh, and concentration, virya and samadhi, are uh, are a pair. So, too much uh, too much energy and not enough concentration, the mind becomes very very busy, very agitated and, and restless. Too much concentration, not enough energy, then the mind the mind might be quite focused, but it gets very very dull. So, that like a if you have a bat, uh, we don't use torches so much here. Maybe uh, <laughs> to a certain degree, going out to the field and to the, down down the lane. But when you the battery in your torch is getting dimmer and dimmer, and your your bright light gets smaller and smaller until there's one little spot <laughs> left, you can still see uh, fairly clearly in that one little spot where the light still lasts, but it's it's about to go out altogether. So when you have a lot of concentration and not much energy, the mind can be like that. You can feel that you're very, um, you're paying attention, but actually 95% of the mind is, is switched off and very dull. So this, those, of, those of us who've been meditating for a number of years, so probably this is a familiar condition where you can feel like you're wide awake, um, but then somebody, you know, one of your friends taps you on the shoulder and says, you know, you're snoring. <laughs> And that you can be completely oblivious to the fact that you're you're mostly unconscious, and and so it can be quite surprising that, and it's one of those the um, uh, aspects of, of uh, many years of meditation is usually people who are more experienced. Uh, people who are new to meditation don't often have this so much of this an issue with this, but uh, it it can be quite um, quite striking how uh, one can be. Uh, uh, say in a quiet mental space and uh, very um, uh, things seemingly very peaceful and, and the the subjective impression is that the mind is quite focused but from the outside you know, you're you're snoring or your your nose is uh, on the floor. Uh, I remember when I when I was at, uh, a um, a novice at Wanarachat I'd been there about a year or so and I just casually made the comment um, to one of the other uh, one of the other monks there that uh, or one of the other novices. That uh, oh you know that uh, I'm always feeling kind of uncomfortable and and uh, restless and have so much kind of pain and agitation in the evening sittings, but the 
morning sittings, I, you know, are much, uh, are much more comfortable, much easier. And they said, "Yeah, because you're fast asleep." You know? <laughs> like, what? What do you mean? You know, so, yeah, indignation wakes you up as well. It's, it's also good for cold weather. Feeling ind- ind- indig- indignation warms you up a bit. So, that, uh, <coughs> that kind of uh, what do you mean? He said, "Yeah, you're totally out of it." That's why. The, the, ha- have you noticed how much shorter the morning meditation is? Uh, yeah, actually, <laughs> come to think of it, it does, does seem to go by much more quickly. And so, yeah, so it can be very deceptive. And I, I've often told the story of when I wasn't actually there, uh, uh, so far as I remember. Um, no, actually, I was. I was there. It was in the shrine room at Chidhurst. That's right. I didn't give the feedback. I, I was there. I did see this happening, uh, but I didn't give the feedback. Um, so uh, 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 it was in the, the, the time at Chidhurst where... Um, in the shrine room, there used to be a, a, a raised platform around the shrine, and then there was a, what they called the pit, so the lay people sat down a bit lower than the, the rest of the, of the sangha there in the, in the shrine room in the house of Chidhurst. And um, so this is about 30 years ago now, but uh, so Lumpur Samadhi was giving a Dhamma talk, and there was a, a, visiting, a visiting monk had come, uh, a European monk had come from uh, spending time in, in Thailand, and uh, he was fairly senior, so he was sitting up sort of Next one along from from uh, Lumpur Sumedha. So Lumpur Sumedha is giving this really kind of colorful, bright, uh, and uh, fascinating Dhamma talk. Meanwhile, this monk who's sitting next to him is kind of <laughs> nodding and kind of lurching all over the place and, and is obviously com- uh, or seemingly completely oblivious to the fact that he's kind of fall- you know, almost falling off the platform down into the pit. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Lumpur Sumedha is completely unfazed by by this happening right next to him and that this this monk was kind of nodding here and kind of lurching around and then and as soon as uh, Lumpur Sumedha said I offer these words for your reflection he went, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that something something in you is reading the signals you know and it knows that I offer these for your reflection okay that's and he kind of emerged and so um, yeah I wasn't the one who uh, I did think it was kind of, he must be aware of what's going on. Anyway, one of the other monks who was a bit more forthright approached him afterwards and said, that was absolutely outrageous. How could you be so rude? And it's really insulting to be sitting next to Lumpur Sumedho and just being kind of so um, obviously just not paying any attention to what he was saying. To, I heard every word. <laughs> you were totally out of it. You nearly fell down into the pit, you know, a couple of times during that. He said, I was completely awake the whole time. And he was really quite offended. Like, what do you? What are you talking about? How dare you? You know, I might have flickered once or twice. You know, <laughs> minor twitch. But he was completely unaware of the fact that he had almost sort of fallen off the the asana. And uh, and but his subjective experience was, I'm wide awake. I'm hearing every word. But from the outside, they look very very different. So, the uh, <coughs> those uh, states can be very uh, deceptive. And then, so going back to the five indriya, so then the bird is the body of the bird is sati at the center. So that's the the balancing agent. That's what helps uh, energy and concentration to be balanced with each other, and it helps faith and wisdom to be balanced with each other. So with with uh, meditation, then if if energy and concentration are well balanced, then the mind can be both focused and uh, and energetic, 
but if you have too much um, too much of if it's imbalanced and you have say, too much concentration not enough energy then you have these sleepy states or too much energy not enough concentration then you find yourself very distracted and agitated so he's talking similarly about wholesomeness and wisdom or skillfulness and wisdom as as needing to be balanced in this way The Buddha's teaching is for the purpose of helping every being to escape from the cycle of samsara. But we who have such coarse defilements of mind and feeble wisdom have different ideas. When we hear the Dharma that says nothing is ours, we become afraid that we won't get anything. It just makes us uncomfortable. Actually, we can say that these are ourselves and things are ours, but that's only a conventional reality. It's not on the level of liberation. It's a samuti such a conventional truth, uh, not on the level of liberation, vimuti. So Anupo uh, Cha would often twin those two because the words sound quite similar in Thai. Uh, Kong samut, samut from the Pali, samuti meaning conventional, vimut meaning um, uh, from pertaining to vimuti, liberation. So he would often use samut, vimut uh, in uh, his way of, of speaking talking about these things. So, actually, we can say that these are ourselves. Uh, you know, I am Ajahn Amaro, and these things are ours. This is this is my book at the moment. <laughs> this is my chair. Yeah. Uh, but that's only a conventional reality. It's not on the level of liberation, of vimuti. We need to learn about the way we use conventions in all aspects of our lives. For example, our names. When we were born, we didn't bring a name with us. After we came into this world, we were given a name. There wasn't any old name to be replaced. It was empty there. In the space that is empty, you can put anything. People are born empty like this. And a name is put on them. A designation for this existence. So, we can call the person John or Mary or whatever, and they come to be so according to conventional understanding. They're not really John or Mary. They are a supposed John or Mary, not an ultimately true John or Mary. Really, there is no one there. Just natural conditions. But if we want John to come, we have to say John. Or if we want to call Mary, we have to use the name she was given. It's a convenience for, for communicating and functioning in the world. That's all. So on that score, I thought I would read um, a little a few quotations from the suttas which um, I, I put together in this book about dependent origination catastrophe apostrophe and so this is at the end of the first chapter uh, talking about the conventions of language and so uh, these are some sutta quotes that relate to the same principle that Lumpur is talking about there In the Buddha's time, people would ask him, as they still do today, things like, you say that all things are not self, but you also talk about this or that person passing away and being reborn in this realm or that realm. For example, in Sutta number 18 in the Diganikaya or Sutta number 68 in the uh, Majima. If all things are not self, who or what are these people that you're talking about? You can almost hear the Buddha sigh. The Buddha would respond in the vein of, it's a fact that I frequently say that all Dhammas are not self, but I refer to this person or that person 
because it's common usage of speech. It's the common usage of speech. Those words are employed without any delusion or without any creation of the belief in a permanent individual self. For example, and this is from uh, the uh, Sutta number 25 in the first uh, chapter of the Connected Discourses, the Sangyuta, the, the Deva, uh, Deva Sangyuta. Uh, if a bhikkhu is an arahant, that monk might still use words like, I speak, and he might say, they speak to me. Skillful, knowing the world's parlance, the, the way that the world speaks, he uses such terms as mere expressions in common use. And then from Sutta number 9 in the Long Discourses, uh, the Buddha is talking to Jitta, the, ho- uh, the householder. And Jitta was an extremely uh, accomplished meditator, very skilled Dhamma teacher. It's one of the, f- the few lay people in the, the suttas who actually gives Dhamma talks to monastics. So someone was asking, uh, Richaya was asking about, are there any enlightened lay people? So Jitta, the householder, was uh, very highly accomplished. And there's, in, the, in the collection of the suttas, there's teachings he gave to monastics. Extraordinarily you know, wise and, and refined teachings as well. So, in this Sutta number nine of the Diga, uh, the Buddha is talking to Chitta. He says, For Chitta, these are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehension, uses to conform to common custom without clinging to them. So, one might say, today is Saturday, but it's not really, on an ultimate level, Saturday. That designation is just a human convention, based on the English language and the seven-day week, referring to a particular experience in a particular geographical location. When we think of something as being right, quote-unquote, or wrong, quote-unquote, the rightness or wrongness is often highly relative. Similarly, the Buddha warned against being attached to specific verbal usages. For example, using a single household item as an instance of this, he said, and this uh, this is a very helpful teaching from Sutta number 139 in the Majima, which is the Arana, Arana Vibhanga Sutta, the discourse on non-conflict, which is not a, uh, it's a very, very helpful teaching, uh, if you, particularly if you want to understand about, understand about conflict and not conflicting with other people, the Arana Vibhanga Sutta. <clears throat> the Buddha says, don't cling to vernacular usage or override convention. So vernacular usage means uh, what's, what's uh, used in ordinary common speech in everyday language. Don't cling to vernacular usage or override convention. Well, like, and when he says override convention, meaning like, Assume that it's only going to be only things should only be expressed in one particular way, and and other variations uh, are not valid. And how does one cling to vernacular usage or override convention? By dogmatically maintaining, for example, that a certain object, which is called a dish, party, in one part of the country, or a bowl, patta, in another, or a vessel, vitha, in another. Or again, a saucer, serava, or a pan, dharopa, or a pot, pona, or a cup, hana, or a basin, pisila, and yet another, must invariably be called by a single name, either a dish, or a bowl, or a vessel, or a saucer, or a pan, or a pot, or a cup, or a basin, 
then insisting in each and every locality, this word alone is the proper usage, all the rest are mistaken. That would be an extreme case of local prejudice. But if one varies the terminology as one travels through different regions, continually bearing in mind how these various terms are applied to the same household object, then all divisive bias will be avoided. So I feel that's an extremely significant um, and very helpful teaching. So that's in uh, the Arana Vibhanga Sutta, the Discourse on Non-Conflict. And, uh, and, it's, and that, the set of examples that he gives there is a whole list of what, you know, eight or nine different words for the same object, but has these, these, all these different names in different parts of the, uh, of the country. Um, and so how easily we conflict with each other because of different ways of naming things or judging things or saying, you know, this is delicious or that's disgusting or that's beautiful, that's ugly, uh, this is how it should be done, this is how it shouldn't be done, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's, uh, um, any questions or thoughts, comments on that? It's also there um, one, on this same theme, one of the um, the theories that uh, about the Buddha's teaching style, Venerable Ananda Maitreya, who was a, a, an elder Sri Lankan monk, who was, uh, he could speak about 12 languages, including um, a few European languages, uh, English, French, and German, and so forth. Um, he uh, he had the theory that because in the in the the Buddha's teaching often you get a whole string of words either you know, nouns or adjectives um, uh, that uh, one after another after another um, like in the Dhammachaka Sutta that we we chant quite often Chakung Udapadi Nyanang Udapadi Panya Udapadi Vicha Udapadi Aloko Udapadi so uh, the translation is Chaku is the I so vision arose. Jnana, knowledge arose, Panya, wisdom arose, uh, Vijja, awareness arose, Aloka, light arose. Um, so they're, they're not, uh, the, the, the way that Venerable Ananda Maitreya was, uh, was talking about it was to say that in different parts of the country, uh, then these are probably uh, words that are, are locally used. So in Vangsa, they would say Aloka. In uh, Uttarakuru, they might say Panya. In Magadha, they always talk about Vija. In, in, um, uh, meanwhile, in the Kolya country, then they, they would talk uh, uh, about Jnana and so forth. So, that's, so he's deliberately using the local language or variations because of the variety of people gathered there in the group, so that they're coming from different regions, and so that these strings of, of adjectives and nouns, so that then the people who are gathered together, everyone's going to get a sense of what he's talking about. Uh, so it's like a, a constellation of, of words that are all sort of pointing to the same area rather than, it, it is aloka, it is light, it's it's not jnana, you know, it's like, <laughs> but rather here's a whole variety of terms <clears throat> and this will pick, uh, pick from it which is the thing that is most meaningful or, or sort of uh, uh, reaches you most effectively. <clears throat> so I think that's a, a very helpful way of understanding it, and you find that kind of style, that teaching style, very, uh, very regularly repeated within um, within the uh, the Buddha's style of presentation. Also, you find that in Shakespeare as well that he'll often have a, a few different 
uh, not not like five or six, but usually you know two or three, three or four words that uh, have got a close in meaning. And again, uh, I suspect it's because there was a big range of people gathered to listen to, to his plays from the from the people who couldn't read, the kind of ordinary um, village folk and, and and the traders, all the way up to the aristocrats and the, the royals, so that he would use different terms to um, to to help everyone to be included and to carry out. Carry the meaning effectively. Yes. Did the first five disciples come from different areas? Uh, to to fit my thesis, I would say, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, you know, who knows? The um, the certainly the the the, the legend goes that Anya that Kandanya Anya Kandanya was uh, was around. Uh, and in the in the royal household in Kapilavatu, I think that he was known to have, or in, in the stories that he um, he had grown up in the in the the, the the royal householder in that area, and that he had come from there, and that in the stories it's like when when the Buddha went forth, and he uh, in particular uh, wanted to join up and, and go with him. Where the others all came from, it's not. Um, yeah, I don't think those are so specified, but um, but certainly that that is mentioned, and that uh, that uh, Ananya Kandanya was a bit older than some of the others. But yeah, to fit my thesis, that would, or um, uh, then that would be uh, that would fit. It's the sort of thing you you can uh, look up on Wikipedia nowadays. <laughs> Where did Badia and Rafa come from? You know? But there's a. Um, it's also uh, the case that it's uh, in, interesting that in the Anya Kandanya reappears. He, he um, uh, rather like Rahula, it seems that he he didn't want to, to claim any kind of special position because he was the you know the first bhikkhu, the, literally the Buddha's first disciple, and so. He deliberately went off and lived uh, away from the, a lot of the sangha for a long time, and there's a little sutta um, in the, uh, uh, I think in the connected discourses where uh, Kandanya comes back after having been away for like about a dozen years, and uh, and he says, "I'm Kandanya, I'm Kandanya. Do you remember me?" And the Buddha says, "Of course, I remember you." <laughs> and he kind of uh, he's, he's and he's crying because he's sort of uh, so sort of. So happy to see the Buddha again after this long time. But uh, it's said that he, that the the commentary uh, goes that he he was um, very modest and didn't want to be given some sort of special treatment or regarded in a in a kind of a, 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 a any kind of unique role because of that. So he deliberately took himself away and lived in a in a secluded manner. And similarly with Rahula, after the Rahula's enlightenment. You, you don't really hear very much about him at all. And, and again, the, the, the commentarial literature says that Rahula, being the Buddha's son, didn't want to claim any kind of special role in the Sangha, so he deliberately went, you know, moved away and, and took himself out of the main circulation and uh, lived a, a, a more remote life. Chana, the Buddha's charioteer, was different. You know. I, I was his driver. You know. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And so there's uh, just before the the, the Parinibbana, the Buddhists, uh, you know, they say asking the Buddha, "Do you have any final instructions?" He says, "Oh yeah, 
give the Brahmadanda to Chana. Like the Brahmadanda like, is like the supreme punishment. Like so, <laughs> seemingly the way that it comes across in the sutras is that Chana was quite proud of the fact he used to be the Buddha's driver when he was, uh, and that he was somebody special in the sangha. So just before the the Parinibbana, the Buddha's saying, "Okay, Chana really needs to get a message. He still thinks he's somebody special." So the Brahmadanda, Brahma means like sort of supreme or highest or strongest. Danda literally means a stick or the punishment. And so they uh, they carry out this kind of, um, I think they they uh, they ostracize him or he's, they refuse to speak to him. They put him in Coventry. Yeah. But they said no one's allowed to speak to, to Chana. Like, okay, the, the master's about to pass away. So the final instruction is like, Get get Chana to see his conceit and stupidity, but finally that gets through. So Chana is, as I remember, it, is finally humbled by the fact. Oh my goodness! Even as the 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 the, the master's life is ebbing away, he's still out of compassion, trying to get me to be a bit less inflated. So so Chana was different from Rahula and uh, uh, and Kandanya. So, to continue. Having been born, things pass away. Having passed away, things are born again. Birth and passing away, all conditions are like this. When we look clearly, we will come to realize that what the Buddha taught is the truth. When we see the reality of this, it's not something that will bring suffering or impoverish us. Seeing that there is no self and that nothing belongs to us will make us much more comfortable than before. We will be able to use things at ease and live in the world at ease. Some people will think about this and lose the desire to do anything. They think that, since they can't get anything at all that will be theirs, what's the use? Actually, it's those who relate to things as their own and work in order to get things for themselves who suffer so greatly. It's better if we can do work for the sake of doing it all the while realizing that there's no self involved, nothing belonging to us, and training our minds to let go. Working and performing actions, we will also be letting go and giving up in accordance with the truth. This is called right view or right understanding. We know conventional reality as conventional reality and see how things appear to be and how we designate them as being such and such. The Buddha said that these designations are empty, when he was teaching the Brahmin Mogaraja, he said, Mogaraja, you should view this world as empty. These words can cause an ordinary person to lose heart. Seeing this world as empty, the Lord of Death will not be able to follow you. He will not see you. The Buddha taught his disciples in this way. Saying that this world is empty might give us the idea that there's nothing in the world. When we look at a bowl or a spittoon, these things do exist. It's not that they don't exist, but they exist in the sphere of emptiness. They exist, but are empty. We can call something a spittoon as a convention that we create through our designation, or we can use another convention and call it a pot. Actually, it's empty of these names from its own side, but we view it in a certain way and then have attachment to seeing it as such. So this uh, uh, dialogue that uh, Lumpur is quoting here uh, is from the Sutta Nipata. There's um, 
the the one of the later chapters of the Sutta Nipata. There's a whole series. I think it's sixteen Brahmin students all come to to the Buddha and have uh, various questions for him. And one of them is Mogaraja. And Mogaraja asks, uh, uh, "How uh, how can we evade the Lord of Death? How can we uh, uh, how can that be done? How can that be um, effected?" And the Buddha then says. Uh, in a very straightforward way, Mogaraja, if you if you see that everything is empty, if you see the world is empty, then the Lord of Death will not be able to find you. He will not see you. Any thoughts, questions? Yes, Vivian. I am um, listening to well, I listened to the last talks of uh, Arjun Mahalua, you know, and they were talking about the Tanga practices and how he went to see Arjun Man. He'd be full of how well he'd done, really. Mm-hmm. Thinking, I've practiced so hard. And then Arjun Man was scorching, he said. Well, that means, but he got scorched. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would think, oh. He said, but he was never wrong, because he could see the, where he was in and out balance, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he does this talk. He he comes in and he says, I may never speak again. I don't know if it was the very last one. He said, I may never speak again, because somebody just moved that microphone out of the way. He said, I want to show a balance to the Buddha. He says, listen, because I might never be able to speak, you know. And he said, Thailand's a Buddhist country. He said, I respect all religions, but we have something unique. And I'm thinking, what's he going to say? He's not going to, because I'm thinking the fundamental things going to come out here, you know what I mean? And he said, we practice with the Khaleesas. This is our tradition. And he, he went on to explain how serious it was, and how serious about that, that actual practice. I thought he might go on about meditation or going to some way. I stayed, but it was this, this is what we practice with every day. Most monks now don't do this. He said, you know, 80% of monks are 50% monks. Only 20% work with the Khaleesas. I just thought for his last talk, you know how, you know, he's a very important monk. Mm-hmm. He could tick all the boxes. And to him, this was the one, you know. And I thought, actually that probably is what differentiates, say, this side of the line and that side of the line. We can understand not self and those type of things, but to work, I'm not trying to tell you what your practice is, but to actually work with that and have the opportunity to work with that, it's just so important to him. I just was very moved by the way he had the faith in his teacher, and this thing as part of his teacher's tradition as well, that was so important, so important, you know. Really moving, if you can see it on there, he's so serious, and meaningly, and this is my last word sort of thing, you know. So, I suppose part of it, we can think, which would be a mistake, we can think that we've understood not self on an intellectual level, or even as a, a knowing. There, there's a, we must all know moments where um, uh, the signless nature, they would say that, but the Buddha was a sign, in arbitration, the Buddha was signless, you couldn't define him, non definable. So, we all, we all know that signless nature probably walking around the field. And all of a sudden another monk comes into the field and it's like, oh, it's him. And you haven't noticed that maybe, you know? Something like that, to work on that level to get rid of this attachment to self, I thought it was quite important to do that. On another level. Yes. Yeah, similarly, that um, there's a, the last talk of... Uh, of Lumpur Cha that uh, seemingly that, that was that was recorded, uh, he says, "Yeah, uh, my uh, my voice is nearly finished. 
and I don't know how much longer how much longer I'm going to be able to carry on with this. And it was during the Rains Retreat of 1981, and he had this this um, kind of stroke and brain damage, and so that same sort of okay here you know these these are going to be my probably my last words, and the, there was a tape recorder running that that and um, and that <coughs> encouraged, and it was a teaching on uh, uh, the um, the on not self it was that you know that nothing is worth holding on to nothing can be held on to it's all it's all leaving and that uh, that again it's very poignant that i mean he didn't know that six weeks later he was going to have this uh, this brain damage and so forth but uh, seemingly he didn't know but he could feel that things were were ebbing and that his his resources were were fading and, uh, and he and those those words are there. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to speak to you. you know, the words have nearly run out. Yeah, that that teaching on on not self seeing things in terms of nature rather than self view. It's that's that's, that's a core teaching. But you know also that uh, that the. I don't know if you, if I heard you correctly, saying it's from a different tradition where the Buddha is, is regarded as undefinable. That's plenty. It's there's plenty of references of uh, that in the Pali Canon as well. Yeah, I think that was the same book there. Pretty much identical. Right. I wrote a book about it. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, me and uh, myself and Lumpur Pasano, but uh, yeah, there's there's lots of. That uh, undefinability, unapprehendability of the of the enlightenment is quite strongly represented in the Theravada literature as well. Just FYI. So to continue, there might be two people, one a clever sort, the other kind of foolish. The latter goes to the market and buys something. He doesn't really know what it is. He has unwittingly bought a chamber pot. He takes it home and uses it as a serving bowl for his rice and feels that it does a pretty good job. He doesn't know what the others use it for. When the clever guy comes along and sees this, he's startled and wonders what's going on. What's this person doing? It's repulsive, using a chamber pot to serve rice. So one is called foolish, the other called smart. Why is the latter disgusted? The pot is new. It's never been used as a chamber pot. It's clean, so why should anyone be disgusted by this? It's only attachment to an idea, and this attachment brings about revulsion and anger. Hey, look at this idiot! He's using a chamber pot to serve rice. Out of these two people, which one is actually the fool? The chamber pot is not really anything in itself. An ordinary pot is not really anything. We designate something as a chamber pot. And then if someone uses it to serve rice or soup or curry, others will feel that it's a disgusting thing to do. What's the meaning of these negative feelings? It's only because of attachment to the designation, to the convention that says, this is a chamber pot. It's not really a chamber pot in any absolute unalterable way. It just depends on our perceptions and how we wish to use it. If it's clean... We can use it for a lot of different purposes. If we understand the truth like this, then there isn't really anything to get worked up over. We are not the owners of anything. 
We can use serving dishes or chamber pots or, and ordinary pots without any problem. These things don't name themselves. We could call them a number of things. Whatever convention will work is fine. So interestingly enough, there's a, a couple of incidents that come to mind from Sangha history. Um, one when uh, uh, I think Ajahn Chandasiri, when she was uh, an, a young ape precept nun, was um, uh, visiting, I think she went with, in 1981, uh, she went with uh, Lumpur Sumedho when he went back to visit Lumpur Cha uh, for the first time after Chidhurst Monastery had been, been opened. And um, Ajahn Chandasiri was very good at making allowables. Her, her nickname was uh, Candy Syrup. Maybe I shouldn't share that. It's, it's, it's being recorded, she was very good at making allowables, and quite quite skilled at that. And so she, um, and being an anagarika, and then she was staying at the Mopananasha at the Western Monastery. She thought she'd make some allowables for the um, the resident sangha there. So she, I think she got some ingredients. Went uh, maybe went to, had to go into town and got got some ingredients in Warin, and then came back and. And um, so she was making these um, uh, these these sweets, but she didn't realize that the spittoon, uh, what we would call a spittoon, uh, is also used as a chamber pot. And so that she thought that these spittoons that were there in the kitchen were very conveniently sized and shaped for for pouring the ingredients in to, to make this this particular kind of fudge or uh, toffees or whatever it was she was making. And so uh, so she was very happy to be cooking up all this kind of sweet stuff that the, the sangha would like. And then somebody came to the kitchen and was like, <gasps> what are you doing? You know, you can't cook in those. That's, that's disgusting. Exactly, you know, kind of according to what Lumpur was saying, literally, because these um, the vessel is usually used for, for something else, for throwing rubbish into or for, for used as a, a casual chamber pot. And so she was... Um, as I remember the story, I wasn't there, but I heard the story afterwards that she was somewhat mortified that uh, she had no clue. She hadn't been ever been to Thailand before, and then the sig the signals were not there. It's like, well, these are convenient. They're, they're the right size. They're enamel. They're, they're kind of good for for preparing all this stuff. So great, very handy. There's quite, there's quite a few of them. I can use <laughs> I can use a, a few of these to to make sweets for the sangha. <laughs> so that was a lesson that uh, that she learned there. And then uh, around the the, uh, the similar time, early days of Chithurst, um, the uh, it was uh, life was very very rough and ready. The house was was filled with dry rot, and um, there was very uh, few supporters came. The place uh, the English Sangha Trust was was quite impoverished at that point. There was a certain time in that same era where, in order to buy some building materials, the um, the monastery secretary actually borrowed some money from the cash the, from the cats, the, the, the cats food tin. You know, the, the, there was a kind of little tin for donations for cat food for Doris. So the English Sangha Trust borrowed some money from the from the from Doris's donation tin to go and get some some paint or something from the local town. So so it was pretty rough and ready, and the and the the uh, the, the carpets we had were kind of. Recycled carpets or scraps of carpet, and the, most of the cups were had chips in, or the handles were missing, and um, it was it was fine. It was very a wonderful, inspiring time, but it was a very a fairly kind of basic um, 
things that that uh, we we had in terms of, of accoutrements of the uh, for the for life there. There was a, a they did have a, a set of traditional Thai shrine tables that had been donated to the Hampstead Vihara, and so when they they closed the Hampstead Vihara and moved down to Chithurst in West Sussex, then this set of shrine tables came down, so they were quite quite nicely decorated, um, <clears throat> and there was a, a couple of fairly nice brass candlesticks that had been you know, came with the house <laughs> that uh, the but everything else on the on the shrine was a bit makeshift and then a uh, a man joined the community as an Garica uh, who was quite uh, had quite a, a refined aesthetic lifestyle and he I forget what his profession had been but um when he came and joined the community he bought a, f- a few sort of quote unquote nice things with him and uh, uh, the, the, some some nice rugs and and uh, some uh, uh, sort of uh, nice uh, uh, cups and plates and, and such like. And amongst the things that he brought, he was also a collector of Asian art. He had a beautiful um, blue and white ceramic spittoon <laughs> that uh, come, uh, from Thailand that was um, kind of uh, very elegant and and. Uh, very very nicely made, and so the f- when when he brought this and, and, and offered it with other things to to the sangha, and said, oh this is very nice. This is much better than this this uh, ordinary kind of um, uh, say the, the 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 bowl, the kind of cereal bowl that we had for, for the incense burner on the shrine. It was like a kind of a pudding bowl. So, okay, we can use this nice beautiful blue and white ceramic bowl to be the to be the incense burner on the shrine. Fantastic! It's the nicest piece of, of pottery we've got. Yeah. Uh, so put it right there in the middle of the sh- middle of the shrine, in front of the Buddha image, to burn the incense in. So oh, that's very nice, making the shrine a bit more kind of smart and, and beautiful. And so there it was, and all of us there were, you know, all Westerners. They thought, they were, you know, just thought nothing of it. And then a visiting um, monk from Thailand was. Um, Passing through England, he'd been been to stay at what Buddha Padipa in London, and came down to visit Chithurst. So, and then it was uh, we sort of, I just made a greeted him, and we kind of invited him into the shrine, and we sort of knelt down in front of the shrine, and then sort of stopped in mid bow, <laughs> seeing this spittoon on the middle of the shrine, like this this chamber pot in the middle of the shrine. Exactly, it's, again, it's eerily accurate according to. Lumpur Shah's comments. I mean, they weren't connected. Lumpur gave this talk in Thailand, not in England. So, this was happening in West Sussex, and this this uh, visiting Chowkud is kind of halfway through his bow, and he, and he looks, sort of stops, and and he's obviously just hit like this is really wrong. Like having a chamber pot on the shrine. Ah, like, oh, I think that would be good to use something else as an incense burner because the signals were. Well, to us, it was like beautiful blue and white ceramic uh, vessel, yeah, elegant and and quite uh, beautifully made, and perfect. But to, he, to him, it said chamber pot, and not appropriate to have in front of the Buddha on the shrine. So, so yeah, it's, it's eerily, eerily uh, accurate in terms of spittoons and chamber pots and and uh, food vessels and such like. So it is said that our speech should be one thing, but the mind another. 
If others are calling something a spittoon, we can do that also. If they call something a chamber pot, we can do that too. It means adjusting ourselves to speak in accordance with the world, matching ourselves to the ways of this world in which we live. The Buddha and his disciples lived with society at large. They lived together with every kind of person, good and bad, wise and foolish. They were able to, to fit in anywhere because they understood the facts of conventional reality and ultimate reality. When you have this understanding, the mind is comfortable, at peace. There will be no attachment or clinging. That is a natural result of right view. You know what is convention, what is liberation, what is the samut and vimut, and the mind is free of disturbance, letting go of things. Any thoughts, questions? I got a friend in Vapalana chat, you spit to me for to drink. To drink? Yes, because the, uh, the cup that he got is not big enough. So. <laughs> <laughs> He's still your friend? He's still your friend. Yeah, that's well. It's you know you, we designate these things into existence, and they you give it a certain name, and then that's that's what it uh, that's what it becomes. Yeah? The um, so you know certain uh, kinds of pottery, you know, like in uh, in uh, Japan, they have a a, a, a tradition of of um, making pottery with uh, that's you know what we you say is 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 uh, it's got some kind of distortion of or flaws in it. Uh, wabi sabi. Is that the right pronunciation? Yeah. So that, but from someone who is a sort of a Western potter, oh, that that's a reject. You know, <laughs> that well, how could they how could they be using that? That that's it's got a bend in it. It's it's the wrong shape. That that's kind of got distorted in the uh, in the kiln. That that's a mistake. But for somebody else, oh, that's beautiful, absolutely perfect. It's a it's the uh, it's what you designate uh, into existence, and then believing in that—that's that's what is causing the trouble. So, as Lumpur Cha is pointing to, yeah, if you know what is convention, you know what is liberation. The mind is free of disturbance and, and lets go of things. So, to be able to keep track of the the conventions that we buy into and seeing where the mind gets disturbed or how things should be, or it shouldn't be this way, it should be that way, then. Uh, if we if we keep an eye on that, we're attentive to that. Then life gets a lot more spacious. And uh, but if you don't, if you believe in your own judgments and take your own judgments to be absolutely valid and absolutely real at all times, then you just live in a world of of wrongness, <laughs> and that the, the mind is always is always judging and and getting lost in its own judgments. So a way of, of working with this, uh, the uh, and that uh, comes across very uh, very regularly in Lumpur teachings, is to actively question the mind's judgments of moment by moment, day by day. So whenever, and it's interesting if you set a resolution at the beginning of the day, like in the morning sitting, say, okay, today I'll notice how many times. The mind says, "This is right. That's wrong. This is beautiful. That's ugly. This is um, it should be this way. It shouldn't be this way." It's quite astonishing how many hundreds of times during the day the mind makes those kind of automatic 
judgments. If you if you do this as a practice, I've done it in the past. It's it's quite sobering. Wow, <laughs> the mind is is making those kind of rights and wrongs uh, and goods and bads all the time, and so that way of, of challenging that or, get, or getting a perspective on that um, is simply to question those judgments just to uh, just to ask yourself is that so this is beautiful is that so this is ugly is that so this is the that's the wrong way to do it is that so this is the right way to do it is that so and that just in in bringing that kind of reflection to the mind's judgmental habits and then what, watching the effect of that, it, it's, if if you apply that in a quite a thorough, systematic way, it, it's quite astonishing. Again, how much more spacious life is, how much uh, much more room there is in the world. Just because as soon as the mind really asks that question, you know, is that so? That's wrong. Is that so? And then there's something is awakened. The wisdom faculty is awakened that recognizes. Well, yeah, from my perspective or my set of expectations, that's wrong. <laughs> but from yeah, another point of view, what, what's what's wrong with it? What makes it what makes it bad? What makes it what makes it wrong? And so, just like uh, uh, the example I was giving the other day of sitting in the meditation hall, and then uh, the sound of the the big machines moving earth and and doing their thing in the on the building site, and then you. Know, the mind can say, oh, that, oh, that's wrong. This is interrupting my meditation. It's disturbing my practice. But the, the person who's driving the, the backhoe or, you know, or the digger, it's like they're just doing their job. They're, they're, the, the noise that they make is totally incidental. They've got no, there's no sense whatsoever of any kind of wrongness around doing their job with a big yellow machine, you know, digging, uh, digging up the ground and putting in the, the infrastructure. They're just doing their duty. So is it wrong? Is it not wrong? <laughs> Should it be there? Shouldn't it be there? So that kind of active contemplation is extraordinarily helpful. Uh, it's uh, amazing how much, uh, how much more spacious and more relaxed life is when you, you actively challenge those judgments. And the, uh, when you, if, you, if you really apply the mind to that, uh, it takes quite a bit of work to keep remembering to notice those judgments and challenge them. But it, it really does change the landscape that, uh, of the world that, that we live in. It uh, has a very radical and helpful effect. And it's also quite humbling, because you, know, you, you tend to see how much there's this um, sort of sense of taking the position of judgment. Go, I know how things should be. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I know this is good. That's bad. And that, just that, along with giving you a more flexible attitude, there's a there's a, a a humility that's that well why should my perspective be what defines beauty or or rightness or wrongness or what's delicious what's not delicious uh, and so that that um, that quality of humility is also very uh, very beautiful very helpful very skillful to to cultivate there, an even simpler version than asking is that so is just to just to think the word so this is great so this is awful so this is exactly what i wanted so this is just what i didn't want so this is a total disaster so 
This is perfect. So, and it can be like you're going to sound like a put down or a kind of a, ne- a negative or nihilistic approach. But uh, again, if you apply it with mindfulness and wisdom, it, it again it just uh, it makes everything much more spacious. You, you you recognize how much the mind is investing in getting what I want is an absolute good in our worldly ways of thinking. Not getting what I want is an absolute bad. And then if you just cultivate that practice of so, then it's, oh, well, it's it's only a relative. It can only be a relative judgment. That's, that's all. It can't be anything absolute or permanent or solid. So it's a, yeah, definitely the, the path to peace, I would say. Any final thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes, Andalo. Uh, I just remembered another spittoon story. <laughs> <laughs> Please, go ahead. I was a heart trip over Christmas and New Year, and they had a really beautiful yellow, like, spittoon. And, I, and there was these white tulips that were fading, and the petals were falling, so I thought, oh, it looked really nice inside the spittoon. Um, so I put some water in it, and I put the petals, and I put it in the, on the coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> and but. The Thai visitors were probably very polite. <laughs> they didn't say anything. <laughs> but as the as the petals faded uh, for the new year, I thought oh, it'd be good to put the incense in there. You know, you go on the circumvallation. <laughs> and I had I got all the incense and candles ready. And later I realized, oh yeah, I didn't have anything to put after they lit it where to put it. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'll use this platoon. Uh, and then. Um, when the monks were going, I gave to Angarika, oh, let's take the spittoon. He was very polite. <laughs> I think he lived in Thailand for many years. He's like, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> well, I knew it was a spittoon. I didn't think, yeah, but it was funny that rather that you say that, mm-hmm. it makes sense. <laughs> you can feel when someone's being polite. I think I'm getting something wrong. I'm missing something here. <laughs> I can feel this politeness. That, People are saying, thank you very much. <laughs> yes, there's many, many stories like that. Sometimes the, the sound of working, people working is quite all right. We can bear with it, but sometimes when like, uh, someone has the beeping clock, <laughs> five minutes before, eight minutes before, beep, beep, beep. Yes, I can bear, but sometimes it, Beep, beep. <laughs> yeah, we each have our own pet peeves, things that set us off. Okay, I think we can finish there for today. <laughs>